week we began a series, a new series, on biblical soul care, or biblical discipleship, or biblical counseling, or whatever, a lot of titles that we might uh, call this by. And um, last week we began with the preliminaries, (laughs) the preliminaries of biblical soul care. And I'm I've learned this about myself, way too ambitious. I had three points for the preliminaries, and guess what? We got through one. At least we got through one, and we have two more. So I just thought I would just like dial it back a little bit, and we would just do point two. So the preliminaries are going to take us three weeks, but that's okay. And then next week, we'll do the final point, and, uh, and then we'll move on to the next, the next level, I guess. Uh, But we're trying to lay some groundwork here, some basics, some fundamentals for our series here. So we see its importance. Uh, Last week, we looked at the definition of biblical soul care, or biblical discipleship, biblical counsel, kind of using those synonymously. And uh, so we looked at the, the definition, and I'll review that just briefly, but this morning we want to move on and look at the demand for biblical discipleship and biblical soul care, the demand for it. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the distinctives of biblical soul care. Um, So by way of review, let's just get you up to speed here, uh, even if you weren't here. We looked at the definition of biblical soul care, discipleship, counseling. And like I said, we're using these terms somewhat synonymously. Um, we might categorize discipleship, like we said, into two major categories. Uh, I think we call them common and crisis discipleship, right? So common discipleship is like get good sleep <laughs> uh, on the physical realm, right? The illustration we used was get good sleep, eat well, um, take your vitamins, whatever, and just kind of those general things, general exercise. Crisis would be uh, I need surgery, you know, <laughs> something's really hurting, I, I broke my arm, you know, and I need someone to set it in place. And so we kind of can think about discipleship in those ways. Um, most of discipleship likely happens in the context of the local church in that first common discipleship area where every believer is, uh, is ministering to one another, ideally, and encouraging with the word, building up, the bi- true biblical participation and fellowship, which is um, helping us all grow together and mature. Uh, there, are, of course, are times when either we face a particular acute suffering or we struggle, uh, especially with a, a sin, where there maybe needs some, more, some extra focus in that area in a particular season um, where we want to really work on this area. And so that might be categorized as crisis discipleship. Um, here's a few of the, I I gave you a lot of definitions here. I just whittled it down to a couple of them to remind us. Uh, Paul Tauchus, he says, biblical counseling is helping one another within the body of Christ to grow to maturity in him. And we pointed out that really the goal here is Christ-likeness. That's what we're aiming towards, is to become more like Jesus Christ. MacArthur says this, authentic biblical counseling is simply biblical wisdom properly applied by spiritually mature counselors. Uh, Joel James, biblical counseling can be defined as using the Bible in wise and appropriate ways to bring God-glorifying change to God's people. It applies the theological truths, commands, and promises of the Bible to the problems of daily life, 
so that people change more and more into conformity to the character of Jesus Christ, living more and more for his glory in biblical wisdom, righteousness, peace, stability, and strength. And one last one here by Stuart Scott. He says, Biblical counseling is ministering the word of God to believers with humility, compassion, and accountability to bring about abiding to hope, change, and usefulness so they come to know Jesus more and more for the glory of God. So that's some of the definitions there. So don't you want that? Yeah, it's like, of course we do as believers to become more like Christ, to utilize the scriptures more effectively. Uh, I, I told the men a while back in our men's studies that uh, I gave them this illustration that we want to be most comfortable in the text of scripture. Uh, it's like our wheelhouse. It's like, um, you know, in I don't do jujitsu, so maybe this is wrong. But like, you know, I read about people and watch people who do jujitsu, and, and they say like, you know, you want to get on the mat, right? Once you get down on the mat, then you're, you're comfortable, you're in the zone, and you can, uh, it's like the place you want to be. It's your element, right? It's like you want to, if I can just get on the mat, then I can do the, the hold I need to do. Or uh, I like Navy SEAL books and stuff, you know, it's motivating to me. And so I've heard them say like, if we can just get in the water, then we're good, right? Because they, no one else wants to be there. It's like the dangerous place, and, but they want to be there because they've trained there, and it's like, we're good there. So, and I, as, as Christians, we want to be like, just get me in the text. It, it, I don't want, don't give me all like just uh, hypotheticals, like get me in the text. Like what, what does the text say? And when, once we're in the text, we're like, all right, I know where I am. I feel comfortable. I know how to utilize the text and use the text to help people and help my own heart. So get to the text. We want to become like that. And that's a lifelong journey to become more and more comfortable with the text so that wherever you parachute into Scripture, whatever the book of the Bible, you go, oh yeah, okay, we're in Matthew. Matthew's about the kingdom and as a primary focus. And, when we, and you just, you can kind of have a general sense of where you are and okay, this is this, is this truth in this passage. Okay, I get that. And, and that just is a lifetime goal. So we're not trying to do it all in one day or one week, but we're just constantly trying to know the scriptures better, become better equipped at using them in context uh, for our own souls and then for the help of others. So, so we can summarize, uh, discipleship, soul care, counseling involves lovingly confronting those who are caught in sin. It's like Galatians 6, 1 and 2. We'll look at that a little bit later again. And then also the second aspect of it is lovingly caring for those who are suffering. And uh, the kind of passage we looked at there was 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 7, where we comfort one another with the comfort with which we have received from the Lord in our suffering. So it's important to see these two, and we're going to actually kind of spend some more time in the future on this, where we, as people, we are uh, both sufferers and sinners. So, you know, if we're talking to someone and, and trying to get at what, what's going on in their lives, we don't just like knee-jerk reaction go, well, there's some sin, I got to find the sin in your life, and you know, counsel you. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not our mentality all the time, because sometimes the issues that are going on are, and of course we know we're, our hearts are are desperately wicked. There's always some kind of wrong way of thinking, but, but we are also sufferers. So sometimes we, we, we gather enough information to say, you know, I think what they really need here is uh, help in the midst of suffering in a fallen world. Uh, maybe they've been sinned against or they just are experiencing the effects of living in a fallen world. And so that's one aspect of it. The other is, or maybe there is some kind of sin here that they need help with. They need help to come alongside and, and bear their burden and, and help point them to biblical change. So 
both of those are important to see and just to be sensitive to what's going on in someone's heart and life. So we also pointed out in the definition that uh, this is a theological endeavor. Helping people change is theological. And we, we, saw, we, we used the illustration of this triangle where you start at the bottom, which is like, what are the books of the Bible, the canon, 66 books? Then you build on top of that and you have hermeneutics. What are the principles of interpreting the Bible rightly? And uh, so a literal, grammatical, historical approach to the text, getting at the authorial intent. What do the texts mean and the implications? And then on top of that, when you actually apply those principles to a particular passage, that's called exegesis. It's like excavating, not like crossing Jesus out, but ex, like out of, uh, digging out the meaning of the text. And so you're doing that with a particular text. What is the result of that study? Well, you get theology from that study. You first get biblical theology as you trace themes through the scriptures and you see them developing. And then you see systematic theology, which is really a compiling of different subjects and topics and seeing all that the Bible says about those subjects. So subjects like the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the Holy Spirit, man, sin, salvation, the church, angels and demons, and last things. And so you see how the Bible speaks to all those. But we're not done yet because the final point on that triangle is practical theology, where we seek to then take all of our study and the fruits and endeavors and start to apply that and show the implications for daily life and how we are to live in light of those truths. And so that's our endeavor. Thankfully, we don't have to just reinvent the wheel every year, you know, and try and figure out how every generation. We see it on the shoulders of so many who have done so much work for us that we, that's been bequeathed to us so that we inherit and so we can benefit a lot from, you know, we're like not the first ones to do this. So that helps us a lot to be able to benefit from, from others. So that, that was the definition, okay? That was where we started, built out uh, what we're talking about. Any, any questions by way of review on that or things that you had percolating through the week before we move on to our goal for this morning? All right, good. Uh, if you do, shout it out. Uh, so here's what we want to focus our attention on this morning is the demand for biblical soul care. The demand for biblical soul care. So if you have your Bible, turn in them to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. And we're interested in verses 18 to 20. And this is a familiar text, no doubt. This is what we call the Great Commission. Verses 18 to 20, and so we read, starting in verse 18 of Matthew 28, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Uh, there's really three ways you could break these three verses apart. You could look first at the prerogative of the command. Uh, Jesus says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth, that's everywhere, has been given to me. Um, so Jesus in his first coming was identified as the Davidic king. Um, we wait, await that rule when he returns again, but he's been given that authority. He, he's been identified that way. And so he has all authority. He has the right to command us and demand what we do, what the church should do. And so I think an implication for biblical soul care and counsel is that we, as we try to help people, we must bring our biblical worldview into play 
always. We must bring the scriptures into uh, helping other people. Uh, the text of scripture and being explicit about the Bible and our worldview when we try to help people and help people change. We cannot hide the scriptures from people. Uh, while secular organizations that may license uh, counselor, secular counselors may not allow the use of scripture explicitly, we reject that because you have to use the Bible, right? This is a worldview matter. So you, you can't say, well, we're not allowed because of a licensure to, to use the scriptures. I mean, just say, well, then we're not going to get a license in that sense. You know, so the idea is we have a higher authority. Jesus says, this is how you must do it. So we must bring our worldview. And that just comes off of the heels of the definition being, this is a theological endeavor in helping people change. And so, that is why the work of counseling and soul care is the work of the local church. It is the work of believers in the lives of other believers. So that's the prerogative of the command. What are the particulars then of the command? This is the second part, and this is the main section here in verse 19. The main command is actually to make disciples. So you see a number of uh, uh, verbal um, words here. You have go, um, you have baptizing, you have teaching, but the main verb is make disciples. That's the main verb. And these other words are connected to, they have their, uh, we might say, imperatival force coming from that main command of make disciples. They're commanding force, in other words. So uh, the idea is the main thing we are to do is make disciples. That's the main command he gives. And so you say, well, how do we make disciples? Well, the text tells us, by going, by baptizing, by teaching. And that's the means by which we make disciples. And so the task of discipleship is the responsibility then of the entire church, not just pastors. This is given to, yes, the apostles here, but it's not limited to them. It's not like they did it and then we're done. You know? No, we understand that this is, this is for all believers of all time to continue to do this work. Now, the pastors are to seek to equip the members of the body to better disciple others in the body, but it is a every Christian task. And so if you, you, know, you can keep a finger there or just, uh, we'll come back to Matthew in just a second, but if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, we see this concept, Ephesians 4. And starting in verse 11, we see the gifts that Jesus gave to the church. And then we'll see why. Why did he do that? So verse 11, we see, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets. So these are like the foundational roles of the church. Reference chapter 2, verse 20 of Ephesians. Uh, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why did he give these gifts? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the idea is God gifts these certain leadership roles in the church for what purpose? Or one of the purposes. It's to equip. It's to prepare. It's to teach those in the body of Christ to do the work of ministry. So in some sense, you would say like, you know, people call me the minister, right? But we're all ministers in this sense, in, in the sense that we are ministering 
the word of God to one another, and we are all seeking to grow and be more equipped throughout our lives to do this. And, and wh- what is the purpose of this ministry? It's for building up the body of Christ. And of course, the church is often pictured as a, as a building, right? So this is an apt metaphor. We're building up. We're building the church up. And then how long do you do this? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And why do we do this? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, this is what all of us are supposed to do, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this is the work of ministry. This is the work that we all participate in at some level. Now, of course, God gives each of us different gifts, and so it's not going to look exactly the same for everyone, but we have a role, all of us, to play in the lives of one another, to build one another up. In other words, there's this growth metaphor from children to mature manhood. So there's this progression, this growth. It, it, it takes time. It, 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 it doesn't happen overnight, but it is just constant watering, growing, and we're helping each other to live the Christian life. So really, there's no possible way that only a few men can care for the needs of even a small church, every need that is there. And so this is why we need a culture of discipleship among us where everyone is seeking to grow in their ability to minister to one another. Uh, when I say a culture of care, a culture of soul care. And so we want to cultivate this culture of discipleship and soul care, not just from preaching, but from personal relationships. I love this uh, in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, And I remember one of my professors, John Street, in the first class I took on, on biblical counseling, which just blew me away. I'll talk about that another time. But he pointed us to this passage, and you know, here's all these guys who are like, they're coming, they just want to preach. They just want a pulpit to stand in. And, and, uh, and that's the work of ministry, preaching. And it's like, well, yeah, it is. It's important. But he pointed us to this text, and it's always been so impactful to me to remind myself of this. So... Paul talks to the elders at the church in Ephesus, and uh, he says this in verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what uh, Dr. Street pointed out to us was, hey, listen, Paul did not just preach in public and then that was it. It was preaching in public and from house to house. There was a public ministry of the word and a personal ministry of the word. And so he was involved in the lives of the sheep, of the people. And so that is important for us that we would have not only, and I think these play into one another, right? So uh, if you only had a public ministry of the word in your church, but, a really, uh, but not really any personal ministry, I would venture to say that the preaching would be lacking in application and implications. Why would you think that might be? 
Yeah, exactly. You're just not like involved in people's lives, right? So you're not thinking along those lines. Uh, however, if you didn't have really much at all by way of public preaching of the word and that focus, but only just personal ministry, and I'm thinking specifically of maybe the pastor here, but what would be maybe one of the dangers there? Well, think of what goes into preparing to deliver the message, all right? Yeah, personal study and the depth, right? So it, the potential is that you might have a, kind of a shallowness in what you, what you say in the, in the private ministry. So they, they feed on each other uh, because the depth of study to give out, and in some ways, uh, the, the moment of the week that is best for soul care and counsel is the preaching of the word. It, it is, because it is that focal point that directs everything else in the church, and it, it, it equips all the saints. Everyone is being counseled, in a way, by the word of God. And, and so that is so important, but they play off of each other, because as you're in the lives of people, you see, uh, and you start to think in these categories more, and on the other side, it deepens the the accuracy of your use of the text in context so that you're better equipped. And so just to point out that this is this person, and this is, wasn't just Paul who was supposed to do this. It was, you know, all of us have a role in this personal ministry of the word. And so um, we want to see this, that this is the mission of the church to make disciples. In other words, we might say that the church is to be focused on making disciples who make disciples, making disciples who make disciples. And we see Paul has, has this mindset in 2 Timothy 2, 2, where he says to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, verse 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Like, you know, a bunch of generations in here, one to the next, to the next, to the next. And and you help others with the help that you've received. Uh, in the scriptures, there's over 40 one another commands. These are commands where this is, you know, counsel one another, pray for one another, uh, bear one another's burdens, these one another commands. And they're given to the, all believers. And so uh, this shows what body life, we might say, is supposed to look like as we, as we fulfill these commands to one another, we are doing the work of discipleship. And so, if we go back to Matthew 28, we see the particulars of this command. It starts with baptism and membership by implication in the church. So, in other words, you, you teach, and you teach the gospel message about how to be rightly related to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and as people repent and believe, then they are incorporated into the church through baptism, and so we baptize them, um, and of course we have gone to them, we've brought the gospel message, we've baptized them, and now we continue to teach them. It, it, we're not just after, uh, I think Mark Dever once said, we're after disciples, not just decisions, right? It's not just, okay, get them in the door, and, but we want to continue to see them growing and maturing in Christ. And so it continues with the regular teaching and instruction of one another in the truth. And so go now to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We mentioned this one before. Go back here. Uh, 
And Paul, after speaking about walking by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the, the works of the flesh, uh, he then says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Brothers, and the implication is brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's pretty broad, pretty general. <laughs> if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So who is the spiritual person? What did we learn last time? We mentioned this. Who is the spiritual person? Context. Chapter 5. Yeah, it's Christians. And how do we know that? From chapter 5? Fruit of the Spirit, yeah. So Christians bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's an evidence that they've been born again, chapter 5. And so right after telling us that, hey, Christians bear the fruit of the Spirit in an increasing way, he then says, you who are spiritual. And I think the best way to take that is not that you're super uber spiritual, you know, you've reached this level where, you know, you have this special Gnostic knowledge that you can help people, but rather, uh, and of course, some, some have, are more equipped than others, but the idea here is that you, you've borne fruit in your life through the Spirit's work, and so that implies some application of truth of the Scriptures, and so therefore, at some level, you're able to help another believer who is caught in any transgression and to restore them. And notice the manner in which we do this. It's in a spirit of gentleness, right? We kind of come fact-finding. Hey, brother, sister, um, help me understand. What, what's going on? How, how can we help? And uh, keep watching yourself, lest you be to be tempted. And we bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this is a... a Every believer endeavor, oh, you who are spiritual. So, I think a practical implication of this then is that in the demand for discipleship, the demand for soul care, is that we, we have to seek to overcome a, any kind of culture that would mask our sin and suffering from others, um, that hides our struggles from one another. Now, this doesn't mean that we air all of our dirty laundry with everyone, but I think you should think about who are a few trusted people in the church that I can talk to, that I can grow with. You know, sometimes we just see, man, I really value and respect that, that man's home or that, that lady's uh, home life or whatever, just their, their growth in the Lord. And maybe that's someone I could talk to and, and share this burden with. And so, and I know that happens a lot. So, uh, and, and in fact, m much of this is just slaying the foundation, I, but always we want to grow still more. I think we have a lot of this happening. Um, and the benefit, the great thing is, this is all stuff that just happens kind of behind the scenes. It's just kind of always happening. We don't see it, but with believers, it's always happening. It's, we're trying to help each other. We're trying to come alongside of each other. But, um, you know, you, obviously you can't have a super close relationship with every single individual, even in the church, but there should be some people who you're, you feel comfortable with to say, hey, I, I need some help here. I need prayer. I need some wisdom in this area. And sometimes we do that with multiple people. And by God's grace, with our communicated world, we, we can also do that with people outside of our church who we've known from other times, and that's beneficial too. Um, but I think also we should be thinking like the people who are closest to us or those who've committed to live the Christian life together are those here. And so we want to be able to do that with one another. Uh, which also means on the flip side, we have to guard against 
uh, gossip and slander, right? No one wants to share their struggles if they feel like that the next day that everyone's going to know because it got shared. And I'm not saying that because I know that that happens. I'm just saying that I just thought about that as an application. I'm not saying like I know of anyone. Uh, Not at all. I'm just saying that is a danger in every church that people are going, man, if I share this, maybe they're going to share this. So we just want to be people who are, you know, keep it small. Uh, And of course, we we understand Matthew 18 that uh, like, if people, if it's a sin issue and people are obstinate in their sin and won't repent, then of course we, we have to bring others along to encourage them. But usually, if, especially if it's you who are going for help, that's not the situation, right? It's like, I want to help. I want to grow. I want to change in this area. And so um, we want to keep it small if possible. Uh, sometimes, I, I remember back at, uh, at Faith, sometimes people would would come and tell me about some, you know, something in someone's life, some sin in someone else's life, and, and they knew about it, and they, and I said, well, have you talked to them about this yet? And they're like, well, no, you know, and the implication was like, I want you to talk to them about it, and I was like, I don't need to know this. Don't tell me this. Uh, this is, I mean, you, you go help them, you know, the pastors are not the people that need to hear everyone's stuff. I mean, uh, of course, if, if there's, you know, lack of repentance, we want to come alongside and help. But, but yeah, I don't need to know that. I don't need to know that. Um, so keep it small if possible is the idea. But notice how this ministry works in the mind of the author of Hebrews. It is a constant ministry that's happening in this way. Hebrews chapter 3, verse, um, let's see, verse 12 and 13. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so, this is the, this is the idea, that we want to constantly be coming alongside, encouraging one another to live the Christian life, to help one another out. And a lot of this is just usually general. It's just we're just sharing what we're learning in the Word and benefiting. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Yeah, me too. But there are those certain times where we're like, I'm really suffering here. I'm really struggling here. Or I need help in this area. And we want to be able to have those trusted people where we can um, talk, talk with that about and, uh, and grow together. So, this is the, the particulars of the command, and then just briefly, the promise of the command, verse 20. Now we're going back to Matthew 28, verse 20. I'm with you always to the end of the age. And uh, we have the presence of God that enables us and is with us in this work of ministry. Paul says in 2 uh, Corinthians 2, he asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? And he's talking about new covenant ministry, ministering to one another. He goes, who could do this? Who is sufficient for this? And the idea is, none of us. None of us are sufficient for this. Paul is saying that. And the idea is, yeah, it's not, it's not me, it's not you that changes people, but we are directing people. We're putting them in the channel where growth happens. It's the word of God, we're praying for them, we're coming alongside and giving helpful, knowledgeable, pointed care. And, and so it's the Holy Spirit that changes people, his presence in our lives. And so we, we go, who is sufficient for this? But we seek to be faithful in giving the best uh, instruction that we can to our own hearts and then to the hearts of others. Um, and, okay, good. Um, we see the Holy Spirit's ministry in John chapter 14, 
Uh, Jesus says this in verse 15, John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. There's that presence idea. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me and no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he, is, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And if we jump down, uh, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am so with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, this before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may have peace, or you, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from there. So he's promising them the Holy Spirit. He's promising them this work that will be uh, the work of the Spirit in them. And so this presence is uh, the presence of God with us as we seek to do the work of ministry that he's called us to do in this age. So new covenant ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit and it works best in weakness. <laughs> that shows the strength. That's why Paul will say, we, we have this treasure hidden in jars of clay. Uh, that's not a very great image <laughs> that Paul uses there, you know. Uh, so he's, showing, he's saying though, however, because he has these false teachers who are, who are saying, oh, you know, you know, in, in Corinth at this time, and he's, he's really saying, hey, listen, our weakness actually serves to magnify the greatness of the message. And so we want to elevate our weakness because then it elevates how great God's power and strength is in the midst of our weakness. So we're making the point that soul care and discipleship is the work of the entire church. It's demanded of all of us. Each of us is both, we might say, a disciple and a discipler. So we are being discipled uh, by others at some level, whether formal or informal, and we are seeking to be a discipler. We're seeking to minister the word of God in others' lives as we have opportunity. Uh, Paul Tauchus, he writes this. He says, biblical counseling is not an option. It should not be something that some churches do while others do not. It is a universal mandate to all biblical churches committed to carrying out the work of Jesus Christ, to produce obedient Christ followers by coming alongside people to bring them to Jesus and to help them grow in the personal application of the faith to their lives, end quote. So, yeah, pretty basic, pretty straightforward. Uh, of course, this is what every church is called to do because this is the mandate that we've been given by the Lord. And so we're all involved at some level, at some level. And I think this happens really at three main levels. And, and we'll, we'll just conclude here with these three categories. Um, and then if, you know, see if we have time for some questions. Um, three levels here. The first level, we might say, are, and, and some of this will be familiar because we just talked about it, 
uh, pastors, elders, overseers, the, the leadership in the church, that Ephesians 4, those giftings that, that God has given of leadership to equip the saints, right? So it starts there. And of course, here's another passage. So think of Ephesians 4, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 2, we looked at Paul training other men to train other men and to pass this down. So there's that leadership in the church um, for the equipping of using, using the word of God. Hebrews 13 Verse 17 also is a good uh, example here. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And notice the language of soul care. You know, the, the shepherds, the leaders are called to watch over your souls. That's soul care, right? That's what we're talking about in this series. And so, uh, of course, we all want to do that, but there's this particular, for those who have committed themselves to a particular local congregation, that is the responsibility of the elders is to care for their souls, point them to Christ, make sure they're walking in uh, obedience to the Lord and in the joy of the Lord. And so this is that, that first level, okay? This happens at that level, and so naturally, uh, there, there would be maybe more equipping, more opportunity for training at, at that level. Of course, there should be, at least, in the pastor's elders to be able to equip others. Um, then you have another of, we'll just say these are older, mature Christians in the church. And here's where we bring in a passage like Titus 2. Titus 2. And as you turn there, like, we're just trying to build out, like, how do we think about this? How, how does this function? How does this work in the body? So you have leadership, elders, pastors, overseers. Then you have just mature Christians, older Christians, maybe often in age, like by years, but also just in maturity um, in their faith. Titus 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded. So here's our first category, older men. Dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women. So this is our second category. Likewise, they're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And then here's the, the next two categories. And so to train the young women, so the older women train the young women, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men. So now the older men are called to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respect to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So, you have this mutual ministry where you have older, mature Christians who are, have more experience, have borne more fruit of the Spirit, have, know the Word better, and they're able to, they know what the Christian life should look like in different spheres. Godly women know what a godly home life should look like. Godly men know what a godly home life should look like. They've matured in this. They, they know they're growing themselves, but they, they have a better idea of where the destination is. And they, so they can look at a younger man and say, you are here. It's like in the mall. You are here. You're trying to get here. Let me, sh here's the pathway to get there. Let me help you practically along the way to, to try and uh, get there. You know, sh showing from the scriptures and, and our experience 
that has been born out of the scriptures uh, how to, to do that. So that's older, mature Christians. And then all Christians, right? Any Christian is the third category. So you have leaders, you have just mature Christians, and then you have all Christians. And here's where I think we can, we can plug in those one another commands. It's like over 40 of them. And these are just showing us how we live the Christian life together. Um, and we see, uh, there's actually a great podcast, by the way. Um, uh, I just thought of this. Um, Stuart Scott, who I gave his definition earlier, uh, he wrote a book on the one another's which that's a good resource. But they also did a podcast. He and a friend of mine, Adam Tyson, who's a pastor at Placerita Bible Church in, in California, and they did a podcast together called uh, The Care of Souls. The Care of Souls, I think. And the first, like, for 40 episodes or something, they just took one, one another at a time, and they just walked through them. And they're like, I don't know, 15 minutes, 15-minute podcast. What is the implication for this in the body? And how do we do this? And then, uh, and then, the, the, then they got into, Stuart wrote the book, The Exemplary Husband. It's not autobiographical, he would tell you. <laughs> but, uh, but it's really, what does God call husbands to be and do? It is phenomenal. I think it's one of the best books on um, being a godly husband. And so uh, he... Uh, he wrote that, and so they walked through a chapter of that, and then they talked through Martha Peace's book, The Exemplary Wife, in a later podcast. But, but if you want to look up more deep dive at the one and others, that's a great place to go as Adam and Stuart kind of talk through those. So those one and other commands show us the role that every believer is supposed to have in the body. Uh, here's another passage I think is very significant for us as we kind of land the plane here. It's in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 verse 14. Romans 15, 14. And Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So, in other, in other words, he's talking about the competency that the Roman church has to counsel one another. And he's talking about all of them, all believers. They've been equipped so that they are able to instruct one another. And in some regard, that is true for every single believer, this verse. Because if we go and compare this with Galatians 6.1, you are spiritual. Well, what does it count to be spiritual? You bear fruit. Well, that's the same as evidence that you're a Christian, Right? then every Christian to some degree is able to help another believer. Now, obviously, like the, the newborn believer may not be as equipped for certain issues, but to some degree, we are able to at least give them the hope of the gospel. Uh, and so we're able to give hope at least. But, but as we mature, we're able to instruct one another and help one another to follow after Christ. And so this is all believers. And so this is why this is so significant. I, it, in other words, this is the demand right here that Everyone is able to instruct one another. He's confident in that. They're filled with all knowledge, knowledge of the scriptures, and therefore they're able to instruct one another with that. So we want to grow in our ability to do that more and more. Uh, the last place I want to leave you is in 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Listen how Paul describes his manner as he sought to to do this in the life of the Thessalonian church. I love this passage. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting verse 7, down to verse 12. He says, But we were gentle among you, 
like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he's saying, we were like a, we were like a mother to you. We were like a father to you. That is the mentality of biblical soul care discipleship that we are to have, that Paul modeled for them. There's this care like a parent to a child. And so this is the demand of soul care that we all want to, at some level, grow in our ability to use the word first and foremost in our own hearts more effectively, and then as the overflow of that, to be able to serve and help others with the problems they face. Next week, we'll look at the, the distinctives of biblical soul care and that'll be a good launch pad for us for the rest of it. Any, any questions as we, as we wrap up here? Or comments? <laughs> Great. Clear as mud. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for your work by your spirit in our hearts to counsel us, to point us to Christ through the scriptures. And Lord, we're thankful we can likely think of numerous people in our lives over the course of our lives who have spoken the word of God to us. Um, some who've done it more effectively than others, some more graciously than others. And Lord, we can learn from all those experiences. Lord, we can even give thanks for those who have poured into our lives, who have spoken the word of God to us, who've helped us think through an issue um, in our lives. And Lord, we wanna be more capable to utilize the scriptures to minister to our own hearts um, in the suffering and sinning that we experience. Uh, and, and we want to also then be able to, at some level, come alongside others, help them, and be uh, loving in, in our instruction. As Paul said, speaking the truth in love, the content and the manner that we do this. So help us, Lord, to grow in this way, to excel still more. Lord, I'm so thankful that um, in just conversations, just the desire of the saints to do this here and to see this in our lives, to, to, to present our lives to you as a, a living sacrifice, wanting to be conformed more and more to Christ. And so, Lord, help us to do this uh, in, in the best way possible according to the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.